Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, um, the ever-emotionally-needy, overwrought, anxious, just bundle of nerves Pisces, and this is my co-host. And I'm Aaron. And he won't say, but he is an Aries. And we are very pleased today to be joined by a very good friend of ours, Abigail, who is a... Research librarian. And your astrological oh, sign? I'm an Aries, but I'm on the cusp of Pisces, although I, well, we can get into this later. I'm not really a big astrology person. So. Well, anyway, she is, as she says, <laughs> on the cusp, but she has Aries tendencies. So I'm surrounded by fire signs once again. That seems to be a convention here at Queens and the Bees. But anyway, we come to you today to talk about Rocket Man, which came out a couple of years ago. And as some of you may know, it is the musical biopic, um, although we will get into the genre question a little later, focusing on the life and, and romantic misadventures of the one and only Elton John. And if you know anything about me, you know I have a passionate devotion to Elton. And so we're very excited to uh, bring this discussion of the film to you today. So I basically have given you the summary. I don't need to like belabor that too much because it's it is it's basically what it is on the tin it's a musical biopic about elton john as he achieves the fame um his writing partnership with bernie toppin his vexed relationship with his mother with various other people so i think we'll just jump right into the discussion because i know that we have quite a vigorous take on this i think that aaron and i will be at loggerheads today so i hope you're all looking forward to this vehement disagreement (laughs) So I, I want to throw it out to our guest, though, for her to sort of open us up a little bit, if, she, if you'll pardon the pun, to say what some of her thoughts were on the film, because I know she and Aaron have talked about it extensively, so I just want to give her the chance to elaborate a little bit. So what did you think, Abigail? Well, it's a, it's a wonderful film. I, it's a beautiful film. Um, it's, you know, ambitious. Uh, the, obviously, the music is wonderful, um, but I thought the acting was great as well. Um, and but it, it tells a, a one-sided story uh, for a very obvious reasons, um, and we'll probably talk about that. It, it's a sad story. I think Elton's life is somewhat sad in, to begin with, but not all sad. And I think it, it you know it's important to talk about what we um, learned by watching this film. So yeah. So I want to talk a little bit then about the thing that you two brought up in the pregame, which, of course, the sort of narrative spine of this movie is focused on sort of the dichotomy of Elton, the sort of persona on the one hand, because obviously that's not his birth name, in case you didn't know. Um, His real name is Reginald Dwight. And he changes his name to sort of flee from his innermost self. And I know Aaron in particular found that to be one of the more interesting aspects of the film. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to talk about that because I feel like there are lots of different ways, you know, we can talk about a character or a person sort of changing their name, especially when they're a performer. You know, obviously Elton John's hugely famous uh, as a, uh, you know, as an entertainer. Lots of entertainers have stage names. It's a very common thing, especially for someone who became famous when he did. Very, very common to just change your name and create a sort of a stage persona. That's separate from who you are as a person. Very, very common thing. But what I love about how this movie talks about his persona as Elton John, it really is sort of how he chooses to see himself as a person separate from the young Reginald that he was raised as. Mm-hmm. And it's important to him that he be seen and be called Elton by lots of other folks. And I think that that's interesting because it isn't just a, well, we need a name that looks good on a marquee. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I'm trying to be somebody else right now, which I think leads to a lot of the kind of problems that we see in Elton's life when he gets into the drugs and all that kind of stuff later. I think those things are connected. 
Right, and it's interesting because um, his name is sort of drawn from a bandmate, and the film argues from John Lennon. That's actually not true. That's one of the oh. little flourishes it takes. It's actually from Long John Baldry, not from John Lennon. But it is true that Elton had a very deep relationship with John Lennon. In fact, was his god was godfather to his son. But it, that's oh. just one of the little, shall we say, liberties the film <laughs> takes with the established truth, as it were. But I, I will say that I did enjoy the way that the film is, you know, maybe we can then use this as a jumping off point into genre, because at first glance, it does appear to be like a traditional musical that you would expect, and also, strangely enough, a biopic. Like, there are obviously musical biopics, but this is like a true musical, because there are these sort of moments of flourish and excess, and certainly the costumes and all of that. And that's part of the reason I really enjoyed the film, was the way in which it sort of brought these two genres into a productive tension. Now, as we'll talk about a little later, those don't always work, and they mm-hmm. sometimes work against each other, but maybe it's more accurate to say this film is a musical memoir, because I do think that Elton's own sort of presence as a character, but also as sort of one of the creative impulses behind the film, does tend to skew some of the characterizations that we get. Um, it's I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that most of the people in this movie are kind of shitty. <laughs> <laughs> At least certainly as Elton sees them. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Except, except that, for Bernie. Yes, except for Bernie Toppin, played by Jamie Bell, like, who is, I think, one of the few characters that emerges in a flattering light, because yeah. he's one of the few people that seems to actually care about Elton as a person. But, I mean, that, that's very clear even from the beginning, because the film opens with Elton in one of his more outlandish outfits going to AA, yeah. and then he sort of, like, reveals... It flashes back in time. Which, if a brief note, on the two sort of younger versions of Elton, one is played by Kit Connor, who we all will remember mm-hmm. was in Heartstopper as our beloved Nick, mm-hmm. everyone's favorite soccer player mm-hmm. and, you know, tender jaw from Heartstopper. So, just a little throwback to yeah. our most, po- so far our most popular episode here on the pod. And also, as we all know, I, I will use any excuse to talk about Heartstopper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but anyway, so that's sort of the narrative frame is that, you know, he goes to to this AA meeting and then slowly sheds his Costume. outlandish persona to reveal the, you know, he's balding, careworn, his body has borne the marks of, you know, his years of addiction. And we see that as the film goes on. Mm-hmm. But as I said, like, many characters come out looking not particularly nice, particularly starting with his mother. And his father. And his yes. father. <laughs> so I know, Aaron, you had a little bit to say about the way that this film sometimes skews how it understands its characters. Yeah, yeah, like we were getting at that a little bit already. This is obviously, you know, Elton's story, you know? And again, as you pointed out, not just because he's the topic, but he's also a major creative force, you know, behind the scenes of making the movie. Uh, And what that means is that we're going to get his perspective on everything, which is fine. It's fine for this to totally be his story. But we have to understand that that's what we're getting. Uh, And that's what makes this different from sort of a typical biographical work which at least strives to be a quote more objective take mm. on someone's life experience no this is very much his story and according as he sees it right and as uh, he wants us to see it exactly and what that does is that it means that we when we're trying to understand how characters respond to him we have to understand that that's what we're doing because this story gives us a lot of villains yeah. <laughs> but it's important that we remember that they're villain villains sort of in Elton's vision as he's seeing them at the time when he's going through all the stuff mm-hmm. and that's one thing that I love about this movie is that he's pretty consistent in presenting his characters like his mom <laughs> as someone that he's got a lot of problems with pretty much right up until the end 
when he finally is starting to say, well, maybe I should open up a bit more and be willing to forgive. And then that's the thing that kind of breaks things open and lets us, and for me, gives me permission to go ahead and say, yeah, I'm going to interpret these characters through Elton's sort of emotional responses to his problems as he's going on and not take this as sort of a straight telling. Right. Of how everyone else actually was to him. <laughs> one might even say that it's a queer telling. Uh-huh. Yes, one might. One very well might. <laughs> but let's so let's drill down a little bit on the mother because I know that I, I was. This is one of the bones of contention that emerged during the pregame. So I, there's a very key moment after Elton has gotten with his manager slash lover John Reed, um, where basically John's like, "Well, you have to talk to your parents about your gayness because it's going to come out in the paparazzi one way or another." Elton calls his mother from a uh, a payphone. If you are young and you don't know what that is, <laughs> back in the old days, people used to go <laughs> to public telephones yes. with coins that they would then call. Yes. So I just needed to explain that to maybe some of our younger listeners who may not be as familiar with wow. such technology. And then when he gets a hold of his mother, she's like, yeah, I've known that for years. And then she's like, just so you know, I think you've chosen a life where you're going to be miserable and blah, blah, blah. You know, the usual stiff upper lip mid-century British perspective. So I wanted to get both Abigail and then Aaron a chance to respond to that because I have my own thoughts about that sequence mm-hmm. and what it signifies, but I want I know that they have their own and I don't want to monopolize the conversation. So, Well, I mean, obviously, you know, his mother didn't respond kindly. You know, you, you see her with her, like as you said, TJ, with that sort of flippant, like, oh, I always knew, but, you know, just don't let anyone else know. And it's very sad. And, and I lo- I do love, you know, the reaction of the actor as he he's processing these emotions. I love the way his lip quivers and his eye, he re- his eyes shake. And you just, it's a beautiful scene, um, I think, from his perspective. But, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the pregame that this was also the pers- his mother responding might have been a typical response for a British mother in this time period. Maybe even from her perspective at the time, maybe that would have been like a good response. Like it's unsafe to be queer in England, you know, at this time. I mean, I know, I don't know what you think, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to think along those lines Uh, as much as, you know, it would be, as much as we would all want for a mother in that situation to say things that are reassuring and comforting and all that kind of stuff from our perspective, we also have to remember that parents' jobs are to protect us and that that's what they're going to try to do no matter what. And she's trying to do that. She's saying, I don't understand how in this world you can be safe right. and be loved if people know this thing about you. Yeah. I mean, that part, that, I mean, definitely that dig, that was a terrible dig when she said, you know, no one will, you know, it, no one will ever love you. What did she say? Like, oh, you'll basically something to the effect of like, you'll never know. No, it's like you'll never be loved properly or something. Yeah. Is what yeah. She says. And I mean, I will, I will, granted, I do think that maybe what we can call the horizon of expectation, like what we would expect someone who came of age, say, so she was born in probably what, the 20s? It's probably something probably. like that. Probably, so yeah. like, you know, obviously homosexuality, or sodomy, shall we say, is illegal in Britain until the late 60s, so, and it, well, obviously, as we talked about last week in Morris, like, the UK has not been a particularly, like, welcoming place mm-hmm. to human <laughs> nature, particularly when it comes to sexuality, so... I'm willing to concede that, yes, it, th- to a 
British person of a certain class and upbringing with a certain mindset that that would be compassionate, or at least what passes for compassion. Exactly, because they're, they're also not the most touchy feely friendly kind of That's people. That's true, anyway. and I mean, we've got to, because I will give Bryce Dallas Howard credit. I'm not sure what to make of her accent, whether I, I think it's good or awful. I haven't yet decided, but I do think that she captures. There are glimmers here of a, of a more richly developed character that we don't actually get in this yeah. movie. Because like, you get the sense that she is deeply unsatisfied with her life. Oh, yeah. and like, that yeah. she had desires. And I think that part of... we don't I don't know that we get... The narrative gives us this, but I suspect that part of her bitterness is that Elton achieved something she never could. Mm-hmm. Or because... This for her, like, her own reasons. like she mm-hmm. Because it would never have occurred to her to try that yeah. hard. Yeah, and also something I want us to get to since we like to, of course, you know, bring in the history with this kind of stuff. It's also important for us to understand, since you used the term sodomy <laughs> when we were talking about this, I think that's actually a great paradigm for us to keep in mind when we're thinking about how a parent might respond to their kid coming out as gay at this time. There is no real understanding of homosexuality as being a place where loving relationships mm. can happen. And so for a character like Elton's mom, it would be asking a lot, you know, for a modern day audience to expect her to even consider the possibility that there could ever be anyone who could love him because that understanding really didn't exist among those people. It was really just a sexual act that was a crime. The idea that there could be love, devotion, support was simply not part of the understanding for a lot of folks. Right. And I mean, as someone who studied the, like, the understanding of sexuality in the post-war era in the U.S., it is definitely the case that the sort of dominant psychological model is that it's a disease that people who are gay just can't love. Like, it's it's considered antithetical, shall we mm-hmm. say, to the understanding of a person. Like Because the idea of that kind of love required a man and a woman. Right. Simply put, there is no other understanding that could be possible under that paradigm. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, so... Maybe I'm a little more willing to concede that point than I was when we were in the and the I, game. I think to to come back a little bit to the idea of love again with his mother, in particular. Obviously, in the beginning of the movie, they show um, him having like this good relationship and getting love from his grandmother, mm-hmm. um, and and she's throughout the film. I think is seen as a sympathetic character, a sympathetic mm-hmm. person in his life, and I think towards the end of the movie, even our second half of the movie when when he you know commits suicide or attempts to commit suicide there there was this brief moment where they show his mother um flickering for a second saying my baby as you know he's kind of in and out of consciousness in the ambulance and it's a tiny little moment and i think it was a little throw in maybe maybe a little tiny bit of sympathy Mm. towards his mother showing that she he, he is recognizing that she loved him in in whatever way she did I actually um, did not see that moment, so I'm really glad you brought that up because yeah, I think that yeah, that's we, a really important moment. Yeah, it was exactly. just a moment. It was a flicker, and yeah. you know, she's like, she says, "My baby." Yeah. And for me, it reminds me of the, the moment in the phone call where, you know, the thing that's easy to remember her is her of her saying is, you know, you're never going to be loved properly. That's the thing I think is easy to remember. It's easy to forget where her first response is when he comes out is to say, I already know that and that she doesn't care. Mm. Yeah. Like it's really easy to gloss over that part and get to the thing that we want to hate her about <laughs> right. and skip the part where she literally says she doesn't care that he's gay. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and he wouldn't have included those words in this in this film if he didn't want that to be at least part of the story. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, because I don't think that she's a complete villain. Mm-hmm. And I think that 
you know, we were, one of the things we were talking about in the pregame is the there's a, a certain overabundance of characters, I think, in this yeah. movie. Like, I, I let me preface all this by saying I love this movie a lot. I love it more than Bohemian Rhapsody, which we'll get to. But I do think that one of its more questionable choices is to include just so many characters. Mm-hmm. Like, there are just so many people that it's sometimes hard to pin them down and you have to really sort of reach for a firmer understanding of their motivations. Like, mm-hmm. what we're doing here is a good example. Like, mining to make the most of what is otherwise a rather sparse performance, quite frankly. Because she's not on screen that much. She's yeah. on screen for maybe, maybe like, ten minutes total. Mm-hmm. If even, that. <laughs> even less his his wife. Like, to, you know... Right. I mean, there... You know? Yes. <laughs> Which I, was purposeful, as I've read a little bit after this. Like, there's legal reasons why they they didn't want to you know he couldn't get into too much with that, right? But that was a sad part of his. I thought it was sad for her perspective anyway. Right. And so I mean, is, too. yeah, and like half maybe half an hour before the movie's ready to end, like we get Elton's very short-lived marriage to Renata, mm-hmm. and then we get maybe two or three minutes on screen, and then it vanishes. Yep. And so I mean, I, like I said, I love this film. I think that it's a very ambitious visually film, even narratively. Yes. I think it's very ambitious. I think. As we already discussed a little bit, it's very much maybe even a little over-determined by Elton's presence as a creative force behind it, um, because, you know, he helped to actually make it. His film studio helped to actually produce the film. Um, so I, I respect its ambition, but I do feel like sometimes, as terms of its filmic nature, there are some shortcomings. And I know Aaron mm-hmm. had some very strong thoughts about, particularly its use of montage, of which yeah. there are at least yeah. two very extended montages. Yeah, montage, 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 which, okay, fine, whatever. But one thing that I did uh, sort of think about the movie, and I enjoyed watching it, is that it's it's really heavy, heavy on the spectacle and the use of montage as a part of that big stagey spectacle approach, which appropriate for an Elton John movie. <laughs> but for me, that just sort of highlights the thinness of the story. Uh, I think I said before something like it's not like this is just a low effort movie right. we, you know that was just sort of hastily thrown together this was obviously made with a lot of care <laughs> and a lot of resources were thrown at making this movie but a lot of it sort of ends up making it look very visually stunning but left me wanting more story wise yeah they could have left out some and talked a little bit more about his brothers for example mm-hmm. and I mean his wife and his father you know it would have been interesting to get more but you know that's what we have and this again this is i think it is fascinating that you have somebody that's still alive making this movie about his own life so this is like what he wants us and maybe he wants to leave it out mm-hmm. right and i think that because of elton's own sort of larger than life persona there's a remarkable lack of like nuance in this film and and as there is in elton's own like person like his own public persona is a remarkably unnuanced one as like he is spectacle personified and i think that that works to the film's benefit but also to its detriment and i think that it's revealing in the first montage for example after he's already got together with john reed who i think is a very attractive character in part because he's played by richard madden who's just (laughs) a very attractive human but we have this montage where elton you know having struggled at first to kind of get success um is suddenly like a huge overnight sensation. And the, the montage is evocative of the video for this terrain don't stop there anymore, which some people might remember from the early 2000s, which has Justin Timberlake mm-hmm. as a young Elton. And I think that works to sort of convey what's going on career-wise, but it doesn't help in terms of story-wise or characterization. Because mm-hmm. there's a huge leap between the shy, struggling musician that Elton is in the first, say, half hour 
and then the diva monster yeah. that he is Ooh. in the Ooh. latter part. Yeah. And I think that that montage is asked to do a lot of work that I'm not really sure a montage can actually do, just in terms of filmic narrative. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just not sure there's enough characterization there to, uh, to have it work. Yeah. And I feel like uh, to give to to give the movie a little bit of credit, I think that maybe the uh, the creative team was leaning into the idea that because Elton is such a well known figure, that audiences will just get the connection. Right. Mm-hmm. That they that we will already know that that we will already know about the emergence of the diva persona, and so they don't really need to explain it very much. Uh, I think it's a little bit lazy storytelling, but I think I understand why that might have been made in that case. Right. And the other, I mean, the other piece of context is that this film came out roughly, not quite the same time as his autobiography, which, if you've ever read it, is literally titled Me. Like, that is literally the title of his autobiography. And so, I think that that is very much symptomatic of the Elton persona. And I mean, if you know anything about him or what's been made about him, the other kind of, like, expose documentary, which was produced by his husband David Furnish is called Tantrums and Tiaras so I think that I think Aaron's probably right that the public awareness of Elton's antics shall we say and his very public feuds with literally everyone maybe helps to sort of carry some of the weight but that I I agree with you but it's like I also would like to see more in the film itself like as a, as a, you know, I obviously am a huge super fan of Elton John's but it would be nice to see a little bit more development especially since so many of the characters as we've talked about are archetypes more than they are fully fleshed out characters like yeah. you know the domineering cold mother the you know the distant father the this true villain which of course is john reed who is like you know this almost machiavellian manipulative <laughs> oversexed mm-hmm. monster <laughs> like yes. physically abusive physically mm-hmm. abusive emotionally mm-hmm. well well to be fair elton hit first that's true <laughs> yeah. But I will say that all of that being said, although few people in this film come out particularly sympathetically, that's ex- the exception being Jamie Bell's Bernie, Bernie Toppin, mm-hmm. Elton doesn't come out looking particularly great in this film either. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I, one of the things I think I appreciate about it, it's not a hagiography. Yeah. It is not trying to, like, beatify mm-hmm. Elton. In fact, it's sort of like pointing out how his own collapse is his of his own making exactly and one of the things that i love about the movie is that it it feels very real to me and how uh it sort of allows elton to sort of come to an understanding of the extent to which you know he's sort of caused a lot of his own problems because he steadfastly refuses to see that for a very long time it's not like we see him coming to this understanding very slowly throughout the movie like he's like no absolutely not he does not see it <laughs> until he's really hit rock bottom and is forced <laughs> to see it but then in that moment he does <laughs> and he you know and, and by the end when we see him in rehab at the end he actually says you know and i'm gonna quote from the movie he says you know i've been a cut acting like a cunt since 1975 and i just forgot how to stop and that's a very self-aware thing and it takes us a very long time before we get that degree of self-awareness from elton in the movie but we get it and i give him credit <laughs> for having that kind of awareness and being so blunt in stating it in such terms right i mean i mean i think it's also worth pointing out that he's still forgotten how like he's still <laughs> a sparking like, and being a huge bitch at literally every opportunity <laughs> But I want to talk a little bit then about, you know, I alluded to this earlier, the film's genre. And like, because mm-hmm. I, I think that when I was preparing the remarks for this, Aaron and I had very, as, as you may have guessed, very different approaches to this question. And I think that, you know, I argued earlier that it's more of a musical memoir than it is a musical biopic, which I think maybe helps avoid some of that. But 
I do think that sometimes it's impulse to give us insight into Elton as a person works in opposition to the spectacle because spectacle by its definition does not necessarily engender reflection or thought. I mean, spectacle as a aspect of cinema is meant to make you kind of forget that you are a person. Like you just sort of immerse yourself in the splendiferous Mm -hmm. spectacle of the image like that's I I love spectacle like that's part of the reason I'm drawn Mm -hmm. to it and I think it's one of the queerest aspects of the film perhaps is its thinness as Aaron described it earlier I would actually if I was going to belabor this point even more than I already have I would say that it's that's the queer that therein lies the queerness is Mm -hmm. that it's it, it is thwarting the expectations we have of you know, musical biopics like, you know, Walk the Line or Ray or the other sort yeah. of high profile or even Bohemian Rhapsody yeah, yeah. that we've already seen. Well, and you know, he didn't write the music. So like this songs, the lyrics are not his. Well, I mean, I mean they to, are. To clarify, he writes the music. I mean, sorry. Toppin the, writes the lyrics. The lyrics. Oh, that's what I meant. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think, uh, did you want to elaborate? I mean, no. But it, Well, I would have, again, like it would, you, I'll let you t- say this, but I think it would have been interesting you know, to the, basically, the, I found it like difficult sometimes to um, square up the fact that the lyrics that are, we're hearing him sing are not written by him. They're mm-hmm. not his. Uh, the, these are someone else's perspectives. This, this someone else's lines, essentially, mm-hmm. which is fine. But it would have, you know, that's just something to think about when you're seeing this movie. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly how I felt. Uh, because I've, I said something before when we were talking before the pod about how I felt like I lo- obviously I love the songs, Elton John. I mean, even even Elton songs that are not songs that I particularly enjoy, I recognize are great songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know, he his music is great. The lyrics that he gets from others are great. They work well together. Perfect. But when we're trying to use these songs to tell the story of Elton's life, mm. that's where it starts to fall apart. Because like Abigail's saying, they're not actually his words. They're not really his story. It's like, this is stuff from Bernie's life and Bernie's experience. And for me, that... That made it not work so well. It, felt, it made it feel like those songs were kind of shoehorned into the movie because they're great songs that are associated with Elton John, people would probably come after you with pitchforks if you didn't include them well, in course. a movie about him. But they don't really advance the story of his life in a way that I think works well. Hmm. I, I disagree, but I can't... T- I honestly, at this moment, can't tell if I disagree just because I love Elton and I love the movie and I love the music so much, or whether I disagree intellectually speaking. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the, the former. <laughs> I don't think it's the latter. Because I do see that point. But I mean, just because the extent to which... Elton's music and his songs, the music, the, by which I mean the notes and the orchestration, work so seamlessly with sure. the lyrics that mm-hmm. I don't know that it's, it's necessarily productive to disentangle them. Yeah, but I'd like to use an example like the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Like, none of those lyrics make sense in the story of Elton's life as being told in this movie. Like, literally not a single word of that song. Well, makes sense for what's actually happening. Well, I, I, or even, you know, Abigail was referring to this the spectacle, for example, of the orgy that's played over yeah. Benny and the Jets, which mm-hmm. again is not, yeah, not. Di- but I will say that as someone who th- who feels more than thinks, shall we say, I think is a fair characterization of my general way of, of viewing cinema mm-hmm. and most things. Quite frankly, <laughs> just in life, feelings matter more than yeah. rationality. <laughs> I'm like. I don't care. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, I, I think that I, mean, I think that they they work because of the performance and of the musical 
delivery. I mean, not yeah. because the lyrics themselves. Yeah, but for me, and that's exactly why I, I struggle with this movie so much because I'm like, that's the perfect reason to not do a jukebox musical mm. to tell this kind of story. Write original songs. That's why I think standard musicals, I think, can be more effective sometimes in telling stories because you can tailor the songs to fit. You're not stuck with a pre-existing set of pre-existing catalog of songs that already have lyrics that you have to try to find a way to make them work. At least like (laughs) Benny and the Jets, this is about, you know, a 70s band and drugs and and paparazzi and all that. So like you get... Right. So it kind of fits a little bit. I mean, there is a certain hedonism. (laughs) Yeah. Now I will say that one one exception, if I were to to concede this point, Aaron, which I'm not willing to do, but (laughs) if I were to concede... I would say that the one number that actually works really well is Saturday Night's Always yes. Fighting, yes. which is the first big belt-out number where we see the transition from teenage Elton uh, to mm-hmm. adult Elton, okay. which is both, I think, arguably is the film's like greatest musical number, just in terms of choreography, the way it's, mm-hmm. the way it's performed. Like it is the spectacle number, which is interesting that it happens at the beginning. But mm-hmm. it, it makes sense, you know, this is when Elton's on the rise. As exactly, it's like, got youthful the, energy. The, the, all the, the film becomes increasingly Baroque and, and somewhat lacrimose, I think, as it goes on. Um, but it's a beautifully staged number because Elton's like rampaging through the streets. And like, it's, <laughs> it is a visualization of the song itself, which yeah. works really well. Because exactly. I think that it matches what's happening in the narrative where he's performing in bars and sort of c- cutting his teeth as mm-hmm. it were as a performer. So. Yeah. I I think that perhaps if the film if the rest of the film had done a more seamless job of interweaving lyrics with what's happening diegetically, you might mm-hmm. have responded differently. Exactly. Like I said, I feel like, like I said I think it's just a it's tough for uh, you know the the people in charge of the music selection for the movie. This is going to be tough because Elton John is known for so many damn good songs. Mm. Yeah. You're gonna like I said, people would be mad if you didn't include them all. Right. <laughs> That's fair. But making them all fit the story is tough <laughs> yeah and I mean well the interesting thing so there's two things as, as an Elton super fan that are worth noting one is that he actually has two autobiographical albums they could have drawn on Black, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy being the first and the, which covers this exact period which I don't know that any of the numbers except maybe Someone Saved My Life Tonight even appears on this in this movie and then The Captain and the Kid which covers the latter half of their career so it's interesting that they didn't choose any of those but of course, neither of those albums produced a lot of singles that people know. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's perhaps an overdetermination of this. And there's also like literally hundreds of Elton John songs. The man's produced like 30 odd albums in his mm-hmm. career. So it is, and I personally think that most of his greatest songs are actually the deep cuts, not the singles that people know. So as a super fan, I was like, when I heard Amarina, for example, which is a great song, um, not one of his well known ones, but I was like, yes, that's a good song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I. I Again, if I were to concede the point, I would wish perhaps they had done a little more deeper reaching into the catalog to pull out some of the more thematically or, you know, lyrically appropriate Mm -hmm. terms. Yeah, but I also think that that's an interesting way in which the the movie itself even highlights the sort of like, the stuff that's sort of more evocative and feeling versus the, the professional obligations and expectations because mm. that's also a big part of Elton's life is that obviously as a performer and a young performer he's under a hell of a lot of pressure oh yeah and he's got to deliver and that's the thing that the manager character sort of represents the the cold hard business mm-hmm. side of all of this kind of stuff that you have to consider you know there is no Elton John that is the world famous legend yeah. <laughs> without that hard-nosed business side too right. and I feel like the movie itself also had to make those decisions it's like 
if you're gonna sell a movie about Elton John, you gotta have all the hits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> People want. They want to see it. They want to see the costumes. They want exactly. To see the flamboyance and the songs that they know. Right, and it is interesting to me. So to sort of segue to a little bit to, I want to talk a little bit about casting and use that to talk more about some of the key, the three sort of key characters in this film, which are obviously Elton, Bernie Taupin. And John Reed, like those are the three, sort of three most important. I would argue the three most important characters. Obviously, I thought Tarrant Edgerton did a great job as Elton, because I think that he actually did a better. And I hate to keep harping on this, but I think he did such a much better job as Elton <laughs> than Rami Malek did as, <laughs> as, as. And I think that part of that is because I think the film is more honest about its subject. Like this is not because it, it doesn't scrub out the queerness. Like I, I like that the film highlights the deeply dysfunctional but very sexually charged relationship between Elson and John Reed. Mm-hmm. And I like that that's what it does. Um, and I also appreciated that Tarn actually did his own singing, which I know Raimi did some of his own, but a lot of it was dubbed. Um, mm-hmm. And I appreciate, even though Tarn doesn't sound anything like Elton at this stage in his career and can't hit the falsetto, but I feel like he nevertheless brings enough of his own performance while also capturing something authentic mm-hmm. about the performance as yeah. Elton. No, I yeah. think it was wonderful. Yeah, and I also think since you bring up Bohemian Rhapsody, I think the fact that Elton's still alive is a, is a big mm. thing to consider. With that, it's if we were, it would be weird to not just have some, the actor singing the stuff, given that for this movie the person, right. the subject is still alive. Yeah. You're like why not involve him, his vocals, if we're going to do that? Right. You know, it's like with given that Freddie Mercury's been gone for so long, it's like. For me, there was some. I liked hearing his voice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because he's gone. Right. <laughs> Whereas Elton could be like, "Well, I'm fine with having him yeah. sing." Yeah, and actually, they worked really well together. Like that's the nice thing about Elton and Tarn is they actually collaborated in the creation of this character, which I think is interesting. Which is, you know, there's a more thought I think needs to go into what I'm about to say. But like the Elton as a character as opposed to a person, like yeah. there's a, there's an interesting dichotomy there, which we've alluded to a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that distanciation because the sort of the character versus the person is such a big part of Elton's real life. True. I mean, as I said earlier, it's imbe- it's Im- like sort of embedded in the name, like because mm-hmm. you know his disavowal of his working class roots. Mm-hmm. And somebody he said his Reggie Dwight. Somebody at one point in the movie described it as sounding like a cowboy, mm-hmm. and you know, like. It's like he didn't want to sound like a cowboy or something. Right. As opposed to yeah. Bernie, who that's sort of Bernie's thing. Like, yeah. in, the, in the title, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dark Cowboy, it's Bernie Toppin who's the cowboy. Like, and I, I love Jamie Bell in this role. I love Jamie Bell in everything. Yeah. But, like, he makes the most out of what is a relatively small character. Yeah. I mean, he, he plays a huge role in the story, but he's not on screen that much, at least in the latter half. Um, and I like that the film sort of shows us their friendship. Particularly yeah. in, the, in the early first third, I think. Mm-hmm. And I love it, you know, when, when he comes back, you know, to be the kind of constant, sort of almost constant presence uh, in Elton's life as, you know, someone that he really needs. Yeah. And, you know, I love the moment when, uh, you know, when Bernie basically says for himself, you know, I'm, I need to take some time away, I need to go back home for a while. And it's like, you know, why don't you come with and all this kind of stuff. And of course, Elton in his still sort of self focused self-indulgent mode Selfish. is like you're leaving me mm-hmm. as opposed to you're doing something for yourself right he it's like at that point in his life he like couldn't quite grasp the idea that other people actually have their own lives their own needs yeah. their own concerns 
I'm not sure I see a problem here, but okay. <laughs> but what I love is that when we come back at the end, is that that did that even that didn't push Bernie away. Right. No. He still came back even after you know Elton lashing out at him. He still comes back, and later on, Elton goes, "I appreciate this." Did, it's like, <laughs> do either of you know? Did Bernie like how he felt about the his portrayal in the movie? Was there anything? Um, I haven't read anything. I mean, Bernie's pretty. I mean, unlike Elton, who was always in the public eye. Bernie's made a point of being like as invisible as possible, yeah. which is ironic since it's you know as we've already alluded to, like it's his lyrics that so mm-hmm. often are such a vital part. And I mean, I, I, I think that the film I would have liked to maybe see more of their relationship because it's so crucial. Like I've very yeah. rarely seen in the history of music like a lyricist and a musician work so well together and be mm-hmm. so symbiotic. Like it's a true symbiotic relationship mm. that's very, very rare mm. in the music world. And I mean, Elton has worked with other lyricists um, after their brief breakup, but there's no question that his best songs have always been those that were written by Bernie Taupin. Mm-hmm. And like, it, they each bring out the best in the other and I think that's the mark of a true, like, very fruitful creative partnership. And it's, I think there's a lot of on-screen chemistry between Bernie, or sorry, between Taryn and Jamie Bell. Like, yeah. I think they work really Absolutely. well together as, yeah. a, as a pair. Yeah, and also I just think that that pairing of the, especially for someone who is so sort of, kind of needs to be the center of attention, like like Elton, I think having a writer who is basically allergic to the spotlight yeah. is actually kind of critical. And that's a fairly typical thing for songwriters. Remember, songwriters who are strictly songwriters are not performers. Yeah. They are not seeking the spotlight. They just kind of want their, their songs out there. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like, you know, I feel like the reason why it may be fairly, you know, comparatively easy for someone like Bernie to kind of be the <laughs> the wind beneath <laughs> yeah. wings is because that's a fairly typical thing for writers. They aren't, they don't necessarily want everyone looking at them. Right. right. <laughs> they just want their lyrics to be out there and they enjoy writing the lyrics. I love the relationship between the two of them and the movie. And, and I mean, imagine this is based on reality, but... Um, just that chemistry, then the love. I get like one of the only stable relationships that they're really trying. That Elton is trying to portray in this film mm-hmm. um, that he has. Uh, you know, obviously his grandmother and maybe a little bit um, with Renata. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, it's it's so clear because there's that moment where early in the film, Elton's basically saying that he's in love with. Burning, yeah. and then Bernie's like, "I love you too, dude, but not like that." Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, which he says it in such a way, like he's clearly like just okay with, El- like he doesn't care that Elton is is gay, and, no. but, and he, and I, that is one of the we all know that TJ has a huge soft spot for gay male straight male friendships, so I appreciated that that there was that sense of not even judgment, but also just like true love between these two characters, which I think mm-hmm. works really well, and it helps that Jamie Bell just has such a a charm around yeah. him, like he plays this earthy character this down-to-earth character so well. And yeah. he butts up against sort of Tarn's more outlandish performance as Elton. Yeah. Like, I think that those... They really, I think, capture the authentic characters. Now, whether or not that's how Elton and Bernie are in real life is beside the point. I feel like I believe it having yeah. watched this film. Mm-hmm. And it's so striking, then, that we get the like the most queer relationship is that between Elton and John Reed. Like, which is... Both is deeply volatile, but I also just find it fascinating. Like at first, I was a little bit like, "Oh, great! Of course, it's the queer relationship that's the most dysfunctional." But then yeah. I was like, "Well, literally every relationship in this movie is dysfunctional, mm-hmm. so of course this would be how it would play out." And they, you know, honestly, it wasn't until the cre- like the credits that we're getting like where he fast forwarded. Okay, oh by the way, I did find love, you know, mm-hmm. right, with David, and you know, yeah. So yeah. you know, he does, but 
it, you know, yeah. you're right. You know, but it, it, it's after a hard road. Yeah. But, yeah. but he ultimately does get there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what, what do we make of the fact that, like, how, how, how do we make sense of this queer relationship between John and John Reed? Like, I, like I said, it feels reductive, but it, it feels of a piece with the whole film. So, like, I want to criticize it on the grounds that, you know, it's obviously portraying, like, a gay relationship as being deeply pathological, like, and sort of proving the point that his mother made. Um, so, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah. For me, um, I, you know, I guess, I'm like, I see where you're coming from with, with that kind of framing. I guess for me, I didn't quite read it that way myself because I saw the dysfunction in their relationship as being so, you know, directly connected to the just the sort of all over the placeness that Elton was experiencing at that time in his life. I was like, any relationship Elton would have had would have been like that. Because Elton wasn't in a place to love and be loved because he was a little bit occupied with running away from himself. That was kind of taking up (laughs) all of his time and attention. So I don't see how anything could have worked out with anyone yeah. really at that time in his life. Yeah, I guess that's just sort of like the, the contradiction of this film because, like I said earlier, so many of the characters are just archetypal that there's not a lot. Like, I, I want to criticize it on the grounds that I would criticize, say, Bohemian Rhapsody, where I was really annoyed that the only, like, stable or the only consistent gay relationship is deeply, like, abusive, abusive mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this film. As, as, as Aaron just pointed out, like, every relationship, <laughs> with the exception of Bernie's, is mm-hmm. like that. But also, and the other thing with trying to critique that type of relationship, because I get where you're coming from with sort of, like, media depictions of queer relationships as being sort of problematic, all that kind of stuff. But we also have to remember that if we're sticking to the paradigm of these being also biopics, right. if that's the way the relationships were, then that's how they were. That's true. You know, we And we shouldn't try to change them in order to present a more respectable type of relationship. That, that, that seems totally unfair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I also just think, as I've recently sort of come to uh, to accept, that, that it's okay for gay... Not all gay stories have to be happy or yeah. functional, like because that's not representative of the gay experience, no more than it is representative of, of the human experience writ large. Like, it's mm-hmm. equally dishonest at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as we've said earlier, it's not as if Elton comes out of this looking particularly great either. Like, mm-hmm. he is just this deeply dysfunctional and sometimes outright abusive as John himself is. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, because he's in that place where, and I like how the movie presents it at this, at that point in time, what Elton sees is himself being right. Right. Just sort of like what his concerns are, are the concerns. <laughs> That's what it is. And it takes him a very long time for him to step back and go, maybe there's more than just what my own feelings are. <laughs> Right. And like I said, and for me, I love that it shows these relationships and all of their tumultuousness and all their craziness because it seems like it's probably pretty honest to how he felt at the time. Right. Yeah. And it takes him a while to kind of come to terms with the fact that there's more to life than just his own feelings. Right. I mean, and that's why I think that maybe looking at this film through the lens of memoir is more helpful than necessarily what we would accept of the cinematic genre of the biopic. Like, because, you know... Memoir is, by its definition, much more subjective. Even mm-hmm. than a bi- an, it's even more subjective than an autobiography. Like mm-hmm. there's a certain level of like fictionalization because it's more about how you perceive yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering. I think that that's maybe what the film is intended to do. But because we don't really have a genre like that, like it's not an accepted <laughs> genre per se. Oh, and yeah. so I think that's probably part of the reason that you know the film didn't succeed. I mean, it was a success financially or critically, but it wasn't the phenomenon of Bohemian Rhapsody. And I only bring this up because they're often talked about in the same breath, mm-hmm. because they came out at around the same time. 
two musicians who were associated with one another. Ironically enough, John Reed also managed Queen, which is also wow. so yeah, there are such a big <laughs> right. So I mean, it's the the. I don't like I said I don't want to like go, keep going on about this, but it, it does seem to me that like two of the most noteworthy queer musicians of the eighties and nineties, well eighties more, but were Elton and Freddie Mercury. Like mm-hmm. there are two characters whose lives read were somewhat parallel in that regard. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to think about these two films, which had very different trajectories as far as success goes. Yeah, and I think a big part of that has to do with fact, uh, at least in part, to do with the fact that Freddie Mercury's gone. Right. So there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of nostalgia associated with it because he's gone and we miss him. Right, yeah. <laughs> Elton's still here; he can still talk to us. <laughs> uh, I think that's part of it, but also that means that because Freddie Mercury's gone, he can't be involved in making the story. Right. So it's not going to just be sort of him and his words, right. <laughs> which I think let, lets Bohemian Rhapsody be a more balanced movie. Right. I think in that way, and I think that Bohemian is more of a straight up biopic. Like yeah. it's it's what we expect of biopic, which. I mean, just so for context, Bohemian Rhapsody, the film, made almost a billion dollars, which that's a lot of money for a musical biopic. Like, that's just a lot of money. Um, whereas Rocket Man, if I'm not mistaken, made about $195 million on a $40 oh, wow. million dollar budget. So that's still a lot of money. I'm shocked it was only $40 million budget to make it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it looks really good for a $40 million movie. But uh, my point is, is that, though, that I do feel like, in some ways, Rocket Man tries really hard doesn't always land doesn't always get the notes that it wants but it, it's i think it's a more in, like narratively and spectacularly ambitious movie than bohemian which is much more limited and much more like as we said like a, what we would expect of a musical biopic of this sort and i think it's kind of interesting that we have this perspective of someone who's still alive that doesn't happen that often that right. you have mm-hmm. someone that's still alive that's involved in making you know telling their own story yeah i mean look i mean just the most recent sort of high profile biopic is Elvis, again, someone who's larger than life, but is also dead. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that's a good point, Abigail. That, like, mm-hmm. We get this really thoughtful, very beautiful film that is about someone who's still alive. Mm-hmm. And, and he's telling us what he wants to tell us. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be able to, to celebrate him and to celebrate yeah. that while he's still here. Right. We so rarely do that in mm-hmm. life. It's like we wait for people to die yeah, like, and then we celebrate them. So it's fun. nice to be able to celebrate him while he's actually still here. Right. And I mean, that's, I, I really, I, I agree. And I'm glad that you both brought that up because I think that is one of the most important things about this film is that it's about a living subject. And it's, it's kind of rare to have some someone be so intimately involved with their own biography, their mm-hmm. own sort of biographical film and how they're Someone who's by been, you know, producing and making music for 50 years or over 50 years. Right. And there's mm-hmm. also something refreshing about how honest it is. Like, I mean, it's, I mean, most people of Elton's stature would have insisted on a more sanitized image, mm-hmm. but that's not what we get with Rocketman. No. And as one critic said, like, or I think it's the consensus that Rotten Tomatoes is rarely has a film so perfectly captured the highs and lows of a musical <laughs> career. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's really true. I think that's yeah. a very, very apt way of describing what this film manages to accomplish. Yeah. And that's something that I will always give Elton John credit for uh, with this, because I think it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of bravery to just be like, yeah, <laughs> here's Stuff about me, some of it's good, some of it's crap, but here it is. <laughs> <laughs> and though I would never, I don't usually hear this word associated with Elton, there's even a certain measure of humility mm-hmm. in that kind of approach to one's own life. Yeah. That's good. Well, that seems like a natural ending point, so we'll be right back with a section on deep cuts. All 
All right. Well, now comes one of our favorite parts of the show where we talk about deep cuts, where we speak of the evocative nature of the film and what we have as far as deep emotional connections. So before I do that, though, I do need to point out, I can't believe I waited until now, but Aaron and Elton actually share a birthday. Yes. They are both born on March the 25th. Yes. So I always thought that was a neat little symmetry. Um, when I first got with Aaron, I thought, oh, well, clearly there's something there if he shares a birthday. <laughs> but clearly the heavens are, so, are trying to tell me something. I didn't choose my partner because of his birth date. Well, oh. I think mean, some of us, you have to have a certain set of criteria, so I mean, that seems like as good as any to me. Um, so as it turns out, Elson and Abby and Aaron all share an astrological sign, so, so right. do with that what you will. Um, but... I'll start out with a little bit of my own personal history with Elton as the musician, which is part of the reason I really wanted to watch this film when it came out in 2019, I believe. Yeah, 2019. And just as a brief aside, I know he's not going to listen, but I'm very resentful that Kelly, my fellow Elton superfan, would not be on the podcast. <laughs> Kelly is Abigail's husband, yes. but he's being an asshole and working on the pod, <laughs> so if he does listen to this, I hope he knows that. Anyway, shame, I have shame. long had a, a, a deep and rich emotional history with Elton John since since ever, really. Um, but certainly in college, I loved his music. And I've actually seen him in concert four times, including his recent Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour. And I've always just really appreciated his skill as a musician. Like, I have a lot of respect for musicians who can actually play an instrument while singing and can compose their own music, who are not just singing what someone else has written for them music-wise. And I think that's one of the things that Rocket Man really brings out is just how brilliant of a pianist he is. Like, he oh, is yeah. truly a virtuoso. And I think that I appreciate that that film, the film brings that out. Um, so all that being said, I also, when Aaron and I first got together, I would frequently serenade him with Elton John songs, many of which were deep cuts because, you know, like I said, my favorite songs from the Elton John catalog tend to not be the more primary, like the ones that everyone knows. I'm a super fan. I, I like Elton for was cool. Like... I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, obviously when I hear the film, and there are, like I said, there are a few songs in this film that were not from the, the sort of top ten, but I always appreci- I appreciate seeing one of my favorite musicians brought to life on screen. Like, that's... I, I really love the film from the beginning just because I love Elton John so much. I, it, when I talk about my favorite musicians, Elton is at the top of the list. And... Uh... In addition to uh, TJ sort of serenading me every once in a while, I've also serenaded him uh, occasionally with the Elton song. Uh, when I uh, was in graduate school back in San Diego, I was with the Gay Men's Chorus of San Diego, then the San Diego Gay Men's Chorus after that. Uh, yeah. And we got to do uh, a show of all Elton John music. And like with so many, I hate to say this, but like with so many white artists that I didn't know very much about when I was younger, singing with the chorus is how I learned <laughs> a lot of that music. And so I've got my my score sitting somewhere with all of those songs and snippets of songs that we did uh and it was really doing that show is what made me not know elton john obviously he's such a famous figure that even if you don't actually know his music you know his name you could probably recognize him somewhere because he's so famous uh but learning so much more about his musicianship uh and learning so much about his persona as a performer uh, was hugely important for me when I was performing and doing all this kind of stuff and getting to sing his songs and doing all that, but also getting to recognize the importance of that spectacle because that's so different for me. I'm a fairly straight-laced kind of person, not very showy. Uh, opposite of young Elton, <laughs> very, very, very showy. 
But doing that show is something that gave me a lot more courage <laughs> because we had to be a lot sure. We actually had to sort of like design our own fake glasses to wear and all that kind of stuff to kind of honor Elton that way. And doing that got me to actually watch Elton more and not just sort of listen to him, but to try to find images of him and videos of him to kind of see his per- persona on screen and on stage. And as great of a musician as he is, as great of a singer as he is, what I had to learn was how great of a showman mm-hmm. he was, yeah. too, when he was doing all that kind of stuff. And for me, that that made me appreciate so much more. I'm like, the man is truly a talent. Like, yeah, you know, I can't think of many other people that I can think of that I think are as, as good of a performer mm-hmm. as he is because he isn't just showy. There are lots of other people who are great spectacle people. Like, Madonna's always been a great show person. Uh but doesn't have the kind of voice. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't have the same musical jobs. It's like he really kind of has it all. Yeah, right? As a performer, he's really someone that I kind of look up to. And not just someone that I, whose work I admire, but I really look up to him as a performer. Yeah, and I mean, like, one of the things that I've appreciated about Elton as a musician is that as he's gotten older, he's kind of eschewed the sort of larger-than-life, like, costuming, like, which I think sometimes overshadowed his actual musical talent as a young person. Certainly in the film it does. Yes, like, yes. At, and I think that as he's gotten older and obviously he had throat surgery that has lowered his, you know, his register. But for someone to still sing beyond that, like to sort of adapt to that new register is a real testament to like his commitment to the art of music. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you've listened to like circa 1975 Elton versus circa 1995 Elton, like you would never know they were the same person. Mm-hmm. Like they sound just so di- drastically different. Yeah, you know, he's, you know, that tenory thing that he could sing when he was younger before the surgery is gone, but left with still a very serviceable baritone-ish type oh, yeah. voice. I mean, he still works a, very well. Right. He, I mean, I, some of my favorite songs are from the nineties. Like that, you know, cause I think that there's a, a an emotional richness, I think to, particularly his later career that wasn't always there in the beginning. Like, at least not with, like, the big hits. Like, it's only in the 90s, I think, as, as he gets older, that you can sense this sort of change within his oeuvre. Mm-hmm. And I like how, you know, in its own way, the movie kind of reflects this with his costuming. Like, you know, we talk about how the movie starts out with him, you know, sort of going to A, but he's going to AA. Sorry, I wasn't enunciating. <laughs> going to AA. Uh but in his flashy costumes, you know, and it's like, and we see him, you know, wearing the flashy stuff all throughout the movie, not just when he's on stage, but when he's doing these other things just in his life. And it really takes us really until the end of the movie where you see him just sort of dressed wearing sort of ordinary street clothes. Right. It takes all of that time. And of course, him hitting rock bottom and going to rehab <laughs> is where this happens. When we finally see him stripped of, what, stripped of all of the excess and actually just get to see him kind of actually being himself without all of the other stuff. And I love how the movie does that because it shows the way in which he was kind of using that spectacle as a kind of a way to hide. Mm-hmm. Well, literally. <laughs> you know, and, and it takes so much more courage for someone like Elton to actually just be himself and not hide behind a lot of costuming and all that kind of stuff. Because as the movie says, he's someone who hated himself for so long and when you hate yourself, it's hard to just be yourself. Yep. Very true. All right, well, that's all we have for Deep Cuts. So we'll be right back with another follow-up PSK, um, which will be a little bit more about monkeypox, which we talked about last week. But since it's still an issue, we'll talk about it this week. So give us just a few minutes and we'll be right back. Alright, 
so to round out our talk this week, where I just wanted to bring our attention again to the PSK, um, which is our one of our regular segments, quasi-regular at least. And all three of us here are obviously very health-conscious folk where, you know, we probably read the news too much. Um, we get a little bit anxiety-ridden. And that's not healthy. <laughs> not healthy, perhaps mentally but, or emotionally, but physically, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, last week we talked a little bit about people being cautious and making sure that we took appropriate measures, getting inoculated for monkeypox. But I am a little distressed by the current conversation or state of the discourse, if you will, around monkeypox and how easily it is already slotted into the right's existing framework for how they understand these things and are already sort of like breaking out the knives for the case, spreading another disease and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I just want to send it out to the ether that we need to be cautious about like allowing ourselves to be understood in that way. Like we need to fight back against that narrative mm-hmm. because I think that it's both, you know, it's scientifically dishonest and also like, culturally deadly because we saw what happened whenever this happened the last time Mm -hmm. but also i want to say to that uh what i think is the great injustice of uh having a disease sort of laid at our feet as a community is that for some of us that might inspire us to act in ways that are self-destructive that in order to reject the kind of framing that this is some sort of gay disease, I don't want us to slip into failing to protect ourselves right? as a way to kind of make a statement that is quite possibly the dumbest way to yeah. stage a resistance is to put yourself in the line of fire for a disease. Yeah. Remember, it's a disease. It doesn't care right. who it affects. <laughs> it's just a disease. It's not going to change what it's doing based on our politics. No. <laughs> so... Protect yourself and be safe, regardless of what that means for the discourse that's out there. That's a separate thing that we have to deal with on a different front. (laughs) I know for that matter that various, at least city health departments are publishing information. Um, Unfortunately, I'm kind of like a little disappointed about what what the availability of the smallpox vaccine at this point. But there is some information. I know the D.C. government has some information and Mm -hmm. some other health departments do. I know California, you know, does and New right. York, but... Yeah, I mean, like, that's important to, like, I mean, and part of the reason, I'm glad Abigail brought this up, that it tends to be among gay men is, for one thing, because gay men are, have been trained for good reasons because of AIDS to be much more self-aware of health issues, particularly, like, skin stuff. Like, yeah. when you have a rash as a gay person, you your first flash is almost always, oh my God, is it composing sarcoma? <laughs> like, that's usually... Like, so we're just much... Or maybe it's just a rash. I, I'm just saying that, like... <laughs> I say this with a really bad poison ivy rash right now, so... But my point being, like, because gay men, as a rule, are more health con- like health conscious, like, in terms of changes like that, like, they are more likely to self-report or get to go to, you good. know, which is good. But, unfortunately, the result of that is that it makes it look like gay men are suffering disparate, like, yeah. it may skew the data set that people are operating under right. and skew the public perception of who this affects. And it all, I mean, let's be real, it's only going to matter to the general public once they start once getting, heteros start getting it. Which they are, you know. Which they are. You know. But, I mean, you know, I'm already seeing... Certain, I mean, and as Aaron is fond of reminding me, the right would have found something to beat bludgeon us with anyway. Like they weren't, they don't need an excuse to give to to go after LGBT people. But 
it's unfortunate now that already monkeypox is being perceived as as a gays-only disease, or even as an STI, which it is not. Let's be very, very clear about this. It is not an STI in the way that we typically understand mm-hmm. that term, as loaded as that term already is. It's not an STI. It just spreads very easily with skin-to-skin contact. And of course, most of the time, sex involves skin-to-skin contact. So of course, it's going to spread. And you're, you're usually, you know, if you happen to sleep over with your trick, then, you know, you're going to be in, with bed linens. Like, it's just an easily spread disease. So I just want us all to be aware that to not internalize that. Like, I don't want to see us internalize the way that this is already being used right. to pathologize queerness again. Yeah, exactly. We need to we need to learn, you know, from the lessons of folks who survived the big AIDS epidemic, uh, is that we're, go- we're going to do the things that we need to do to protect ourselves and survive through this regardless of what anybody else is saying or doing either way. Right. Like, and for me, I tend... This is just my personality, but I tend to advocate a great big, I don't give a fuck what anyone else is saying <laughs> approach to this kind of stuff. Do what you need to do to take care of yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, just be, as, as, as the case with all health issues, be safe, be cautious. You know, that, that's a, a good rule to live by. No, no, as Abigail said earlier, know your health department, like consult them, especially if you live in big cities where this stuff spreads much more easily. There may um, be vaccines available, but I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Like, yeah. there, are, I think New York City has some, I'm pretty sure DC does well, most of the did. cities. Like it did. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the point is that I just, I don't want to see us victimized again in a way that is deeply unfair and ultimately counterproductive. So just don't don't internalize the, the homophobia that's out there. But at the same time, don't act like going out and having a whole bunch of sex is some kind of political act, because like, or it can be, but don't let that blind you to the risks involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, is it, that's actually the dumbest way to protest. Harming yourself in order to say fuck you to someone else doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> right, and it's also true that monkeypox is not deadly, almost never deadly, but it is extremely painful. So, And it can scar. So if nothing else convinces you of the risk of monkeypox, monkeypox, like smallpox can, and chickenpox, can leave scars. So maybe that will help give an inducement to maybe be a little more cautious. <laughs> mm. So that's your PSGA for this week. And we'll be right back to let you know about our social media channels. All right. Well, thank you all, as always, for tuning in to Queens of the Bees. I hope you're all enjoying the weekly release schedule, which we are happy to have more movies to talk about with all of you, because Lord knows we need more attention. Well, I need more attention, but (laughs) I don't think Aaron cares. Um, so, of course, you can follow us on social media. You can follow me uh, at, on Twitter at TJWest3. Uh, I'm now going by the name Juliet Brioche, so I hope you appreciate my pun, which, contrary to Aaron's claim, I... I made that up. He, he stole it from he me. He did not. I He's a thief, everyone. <laughs> you can also stole follow, it. You can also follow me on Instagram at ThomasWest and the number three. And as has become habitual, I promise at some point we will have our own Queens of the Bees Instagram, but, you know, it takes a lot of work. So I have not yet got around to doing that or cultivating it, but I promise at some point we will. Um, I know Abigail's not going to share her social media because she's not really... She's a Gen Xer. I know they don't really do social media that much. (laughs) Um, And so is Aaron, so I won't even bother asking him (laughs) about where his social media is. 
Um, so you, if you want to follow social media, follow me. I'm very funny on Twitter, so I hope you he appreciate is. it. He's funny off Twitter, too. Yeah. yeah, I'm very funny everywhere. He's adorable. I love him. Oh, thank you. This is why I have her on the show. Feed my, <laughs> en- my endless and boundless ego. Love you both. Yeah, very fragile. Um, I have a, there's a reason I have a great deal of spiritual sympathy with Elton John. Not that I would ever be that fabulous, but maybe once Queen of the Beast becomes <laughs> viral. But anyway, I get distracted easily. Speaking of which, speaking of going viral, if you have a chance and you love what we do here at Queens, which I know you do, please be sure to rate us wherever you listen to your podcast, particularly on Apple. The more ratings that we get, the more easily people can discover us. And, you know, for a little podcast like ours that doesn't have a huge following just yet, that really means a lot. And if you have even more time and you love us even more, you want to prove that, please let, write a review. Um, we do read them and take them seriously. Don't hurt our feelings, though. I'm very delicate, so please don't be too... Ru- critical um but a little constructive criticism maybe but we really want the praise that's what really gets people to listen to us, are nice to us and i'm just gonna say i'm very disappointed that you when you said uh speaking of going viral that you didn't use that as the segue into the monkey pox oh, <laughs> discussion i was an unfortunate <laughs> missed opportunity oh, but i'll keep that in mind the next time a new virus starts sweeping the gay community <laughs> But anyway, so if you have a chance, please rate or review us wherever you get your podcast, because that really does mean a lot to us. So, for this week's episode of Queens of the Bees, I want to thank Abigail for being a great guest host. I want to thank my co-host Aaron, as always, for his commentary. And I want to thank each and every one of you, because we really do appreciate all of you out there in listener land. So we'll be back with you next week, where we'll be happy to share more of our thoughts on all the great things happening in queer film and TVs. Until next week, goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, that was really inspiring. <laughs> <laughs>